This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Good evening and welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show, the show which is actually mostly about sex because sex is so tied to your health. We uncover what lies beneath the covers on this program. That is the cue to put your children to bed and remember that this show is not a replacement for a visit to your healthcare professional or a doctor for whatever ails you. I am Maureen McGrath, a registered nurse, nurse continence advisor, and an ASECT trained sexual health educator. No subject is off limits. If you have a question, the number to call is one 399 I have a prize to give out tonight. Or, I know these are sensitive subjects, so you can always email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com. Whether you leak urine or have love life trouble, you've come to the right place. I am here for you. Good evening, Andrew. How are you? I'm doing okay. Oh, just okay? <laughs> yeah, just okay. <laughs> That's all right. Good week? An okay week. Okay, yeah, not bad. We had, um, well, we had Amy Schumer come out with her Netflix thing, which I've watched actually twice. And I saw someone on Instagram uh, has watched it three times, so I'm going to watch it again. <laughs> you got to be number one. <laughs> now you think so, huh? Oh, well, you just said, oh, I got to watch it again because someone else watched it three times. Uh oh, gotta, I got to <laughs> oh, be there competitive first. competitive spirit. No, I was just, I just love it. I think she's hilarious. And I just, you know, you, you, I never watch a movie twice. Anyway, we've got lots to cover on the show tonight uh, from lab tests to low sexual desire in married couples to libido, libido boosting and uh, to loving all of you. Um, we've got some information for new moms and relationship deal breakers, uh, but first we are uh, going to get straight to my health headline, Cer- certainly. Um, so our first subject, however, which I want to get to is snowplow parents. It's never saying no. It's not ever wanting your children to feel frustration or pain, and God forbid they fail. Samantha Livingstone is an Olympic gold medalist, high-performance coach, speaker, and entrepreneur. She is the founder of the Rise Free Academy, a holistic approach to cultivating high-performance teams to promote resiliency in athletes. Honestly, this is something you want to build in your children. Welcome to the program, Samantha. I am so happy to be here with you. Oh, that's so sweet. Uh, Thanks for taking your time. I really appreciate that. Uh, Now, snowplow parenting has been in the news a little bit, yet people don't want to talk about it. It seems to be helicopter parenting on steroids. Mm, Yes. So helicopter parenting is the, it was born right right around the time I was born in the 80s when we were so concerned about our physical safety of our kids. And the snowplow parenting is that, you know, it's the shift to the emotional safety of our kids and trying to protect and pad our kids from feeling hard feelings. And it's out of that rescue yeah. rescue option. We're rescuing your child's every need from childhood, mm-hmm. from infancy to childhood to adolescence to adulthood. Mm-hmm. So the snowplow parents, you know, in, in, instead of hovering, right, and, and being there to lift, it's this idea of, paving the way, you know, removing any barriers and obstacles ahead of the child. So you're paving the path for them instead of, you know, preparing the kid and the child for the path. And yet many people talk about, including Michelle Obama, who I saw this week, talk about failing, how failure is good. Mm. I mean, you can only go up from failure. You know, once, once you go down, once you hit rock bottom, the only place from there is up. And we learn so much from our failures, yet why are parents afraid to allow their children to fail? Oh, my goodness, because, it's, it, it, because of those big, hard feelings. It's hard to do, and we're hardwired 
to avoid pain or brains. It's an evolutionary piece of who we are as human beings. And so to see our kids fall and feel and hurt, you know, that it goes against that primal nature and pull to, to protect them. And I think what we're in a day and age where we're not facing saber-toothed tigers. And so there's, it's not a life or death situation. I mean, in some cases, right? So in the non-life or death situations, we have to ask ourselves, you know, what's the worst case here? What does falling look like? And it, it takes a skill set as a parent in having your own emotional awareness and your own coping skills intact before you can even attempt to model that and provide that for your kids. It's hard. It's hard work. Absolutely. I think that's the short answer. Yeah. And I think also, you know, I always think everybody loves a comeback kid. You know, you can't help but love somebody who has fallen, who has failed, who has picked themselves up, dusted themselves off, and become successful. In a recent poll by the New York Times, there was uh, it was a survey done uh, that looked at 1,508 young adults and 1,136 parents of children that age found a majority of parents were still doing mundane tasks for their children. And the poll found 76% of parents reminded their adult children of deadlines at mm-hmm. school. So that's at university. Yeah. They're at university and they're saying, you have a midterm on Thursday. 74% made appointments for them, including doctor's appointments. Mm-hmm. And 15% of parents texted or called their children to wake them up every morning. Why is this wrong? <laughs> A lot of parents yeah, are asking. So I know. Well, so I think that we want to give our kids the advantage. We want to. We, we want to. We want to see them succeed, right? And I think that that there's. I don't think it starts one day when you wake up and you say, "I'm going to do these things for my kids." I think it starts slowly over time, and that all of us is not like a snowplow parent and a non-snowplow parent. I think that we all move into that space and are capable of sliding into that space of paving the path for our kids, and. You know, what wrong is, you know, that's a judgment, right? I think the better question that we can ask is, is this serving our kids? Not short term, but long term. And what we know is that anxiety rates are skyrocketing. We have a, we have a mental health crisis. We have kids who are going to college and can't complete basic tasks. They have, they're having a hard time on their own without the help of their parents because they haven't developed the skills. There's, there are classes now I mean, when you talk to, and I work with populations of students that are in college, it's like the fear of failure is so, I mean, it's so intense because they haven't been allowed to fail. And they therefore don't have the skills and that deep knowingness, that self-trust, that no matter what hard things come my way, I can do this. I can do these hard things because they haven't had a chance to build that. And are we not teaching children that, you know, uh, a for effort, persistence, and hard work is often what it takes. And if you just mm. put that in uh, to your life, chances are you're actually going to be more successful in life. But yeah. if somebody's doing so I, it for you all the time. Yeah, well, I think that we're a culture that is obsessed with performance and outcome based. I mean, I think we're obsessed with titles and labels and all of the things that sit on top of the iceberg. And, you know, the parts of the people's stories, the name and what you have after it, what degree, where you went. I think we're hyper obsessed and we and we say and we love those movies when, when the underdog wins. And we, we we say that we like those, you know, characteristics and attributes of people. But then what we celebrate and honor and look up to and put on a pedestal are all the achievements. And so I think that we're sitting in this space where it's not aligned, you know, what we say and what we're actually doing they're not the same. And so how do you close that space? And 
actually live by those values, that growth mindset and hard work driven. I mean, I think by making this shift to process-based goals versus all outcome. I mean, I could get on a whole tangent about that because of my athletic background too. But I think, yeah, I think that we, it's time. The cultural tide, is it's time to turn it and start to put those values at the top you know, and, and that's not to say you have to dismiss performance. I love performing and I love the opportunities too. Those things are outside of our control, right? So when, when it comes time for a performance, you can show up and only con- control certain factors versus the process, what you're talking about, the hard work, the grit, the falling down, the getting up, all of that, the process goals, we can control those. And you're ultimately and so I think the anxiety. Yeah. I was going to say, you're ultimately Sorry. building self-confidence in your children. How have we gotten away from building self-confidence in children? We have more people on antidepressants than ever before. Mm-hmm. People want a quick fix. Uh, they don't believe in their own right. skills because they haven't had that opportunity to, you know, do that project in grade one. I was at a dinner party once and somebody said to another parent, okay, who did the architectural building for your six-year-old? Because that wasn't done by a six-year-old. <laughs> and the father had to fess up. And so we start that at a very young age. And so the kids know, hey, I didn't do this. My father did it, but it's amazing. And I'm getting all these accolades. So this is great. Well, and it tips away. So I think when we do that, we undercut what we're saying to them. I mean, as simple as, like, it could start as small and simple as my two-year-old wanting to bake with me in the kitchen. And if I'm, you know, so concerned about the mess and all the things and I'm not letting her try to take the, you know, the flour and get dump it into the bowl... What I'm saying is, no, I have to do this the right way, and I don't trust that you're going to be able to do it, and it's not okay if you make a mess. I mean, so it starts that small. Exactly. And so I think checking our need for control and then checking our values and asking what really matters. So what happens if the kid puts a project up? What does it say about that child? I think we run away with stories about what it means. I don't think that parents are doing this with the intent of hurting their kid. I really don't. I don't either. I think that most parents, yeah, are trying to – they're trying to, you know, they're trying to do the best. And then we mix in there all of our, the pulls that we feel in our unsettled business, you right. know, things that we haven't learned how to cope with and kind of put that on our kids. Yeah. And then it hurt, in, in the long run, it's really, it's, it's robbing them of the opportunity to, to develop the confidence, exactly what you said. Even in and, basic life skills, I had a patient in my office, she was completely depleted. She was absolutely wrecked and she had three kids and one set of twins, and they were, you know, well into their teens, 17, 18 years old, and she had never taught them how to do their own laundry. And her excuse was mm-hmm. she was afraid there was going to be a leak because there was some problem with the washing machine. You know, why mm. not get the washing machine fixed? But sh- it was control. Yeah. It was a control issue for her. So why do we feel yeah. compelled to control? So I think that's just it. That there's this Because not releasing and stepping into the unknown and uncertainty is so uncomfortable. Like it, just saying it, stepping into that space and learning how, giving ourselves permission to not know what the outcome is going to be takes practice. That's in, in order for us to move into that space of discomfort, which makes, you know, that space of not knowing makes me super fidgety. You think of waiting for test results. Think of the times and places and spaces in your life where this uncertainty of how someone's going to respond or how something's going to go. And in, uh, often we numb and we run and we don't allow ourselves to fully feel. And so learning how to do that, learning how to feel the discomfort and then learning how to walk it down and ask ourselves, well, what, why? Why not? Why can't they do it? Wait, what does it mean? Why do I say no to laundry? Okay, well, right, and get to this. 
and the her, bottom of it, which is. Yeah. yeah, what was her answer? Her answer was she was going to, it didn't matter when he went off to university and he was going to Ivy League. Mm-hmm. Um, when he went off to university, he could send his laundry out. I mean, really. So, yeah. you know, sometimes it's really yeah. hard. But you have an academy called the Rise Free Academy where you inspire, empower, and equip women and athletes and coaches with the skills they need to mm-hmm. cultivate high performance. And you have a promo code. Um, how mm-hmm. can people sign up for the Rise Free Academy? Oh, I would love so SamanthaLivingstone.com and then backslash rise free. And then once, you know, for the application for enrollment, if you use the promo code rise free, one word, no space at checkout, you can save 20%. And I'm pumped to offer that to your listeners. Because oh. this is what we do in there. We do it as adults. We cultivate these skills so that we can help our kids. Do Wonderful. That's fantastic. Thank mm-hmm. you so much, Samantha Arsenal Livingstone. Her website is samanthalivingstone.com. Really appreciate you joining me this evening. Okay, so I did a little poll on Instagram. You can always follow me on Instagram if you like, if you are so, if you so please, I should say, and just go to Maureen McGrath expert. That's me. And so my little poll on Instagram showed that, you know, a lot of people aren't all that happy in love, perhaps, or uh, 71% of the people who answered the poll had more sex, get this, before they were married. (laughs) What a shocker. Um, I had a patient in my office this week and she said (laughs) something like, um, are you you familiar with um, that married sex is boring? I'm like, Oh my God, no. Tell me about that. (laughs) Tell me more. Okay. And also according to my Insta poll, 43% of married people are not satisfied with their sex lives. I was a little concerned here because maybe some people uh, are that said they were satisfied because they're actually, they're okay with the amount of sex that they're having. Anyway, whether you're having sex or not good sex or bad sex, whatever. You always want to improve it. Maybe the answer lies in the fridge. Maybe, maybe not. I have gone to the expert for this. Allie Chernoff is a registered dietitian, and her website is nutritionatitsbest.com. And she joins me on the line right now because we're going to be talking about uh, whether there are libido-boosting foods for better sex or whether that's a myth. Hello, Allie. Hello, Marie. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Great. Thanks for joining me on the line. Uh, Now, research has shown that there's a whole bunch of different habits that can lead to great sex, like regular exercise or simply being nice. You know, you actually get a whole lot more sex if you're pleasant. Uh, Go figure. Uh, But your diet may have uh, or may not have some effect on how your body functions. And so, might some of these foods that we hear about increase somebody's libido? So I wanted to ask you about a few of them that are pretty well known, like oysters, for example. Oysters have zinc in them. Are they considered to be a natural Viagra, or what's the evidence? Well, unfortunately, the common ones like oysters, chocolate, spicy food, there's no real uh, evidence that supports this. However, I'm all for trying different foods. I mean, if it works for you, I say go for it. Okay, because there's always the placebo effect, correct? 
Absolutely. And the placebo effect is fantastic, right? And it is real, isn't it? Now, is it the fact that these have never been studied and we just have a whole lot of people out there touting that pine nuts are going to actually increase your sex drive or that grass-fed steak um, because it has zinc and iron that helps red blood cells transport oxygen, that's going to actually translate to a better sex life? Well, things... More specifically, like chocolate and spicy food has been researched. There's just no uh, concrete evidence that supports this. However, uh, coming out, so stay tuned, you never know, but ginkgo is actually now being studied. Oh, is that right? Very interesting. And so ginkgo is um, allegedly good for memory as well. So (laughs) maybe if you remember what sex was like (laughs) the last time you had it last year... You might want to do it again this year. Is that it? It's like working out. Your muscle has a memory, right? You got to work it. That's exactly right. So even though people might feel physically a bit hotter from spicy foods, uh, I was out for dinner with a bunch of women the other night, and somebody started taking off her clothes um, <laughs> because not all of them, but anyway, um, because she had eaten something that was pretty spicy. She just started to get hot, and she said, "It's not a hot flash. It's just that I, um, you know, it was from the spicy food." So, so that doesn't translate to um, a spark in sex drive. Well, it doesn't. Uh exactly correlate to the effect of libido. But hey, as I said, I mean, if it works for you and you think that's going to work, then go for it, right? Right. And oftentimes people talk about asparagus. You wouldn't think of that, but it's uh, high in folate and that's a B vitamin that regulates the production of histamine, which is the chemical that is released during an orgasm. So uh, for people who have primary anorgasmia, who have have difficulty experiencing orgasm, would you know a plate of asparagus do the trick just before <laughs> the dirty deed? <laughs> I wish there was a magic food for libido. I really do. Like I'm hoping for ginkgo here that you know at some point maybe it will become uh, some more evidence to support it. But and at the end of the day, you've got to. Uh, work with your placebo, right? Right. So if that mentally gets you stimulated, then I would say go for that. And then as well, people want to feel confident, right? So if you're slightly overweight or if you are, you know, we're on worst critic, if you feel that you are overweight, you may not be, um, you know, something like nutrition loss might be the key for them to get them motivated. Right. And you do that work, don't you? You actually coach people, um, to help with their to help maintain a healthy diet and teach them what they should be eating and what foods they should be avoiding because body image is incredibly important in the bedroom. So if you're not feeling great about your body, uh, if you've added a few pounds of late, you may not feel as sexy as um, you know as you are, or you might not be as comfortable with your curves. Um, so a nutritionist is a person to someone like yourself that people can uh, consult with. Uh, absolutely. I mean, making healthy lifestyle choices definitely might lead to better, fun nutrition things in the bedroom. Who knows? Exactly. Well, you can always choose things like, I mean, whipped cream. For sure, whipped cream has uh, a libido-boosting effect, but you just don't consume it first. Okay, <laughs> anyway, we'll throw, we'll throw in the strawberries to make it a little more healthy. <laughs> little fruit, little chocolate, just spread it all there over. Um, but I wanted to ask you, what's the hypothesis behind ginkgo? I forgot, but I should probably use some. But anyway, what, why, why do they think ginkgo well, they might work? they don't know yet. This is just this is preliminary. So 
I've, I've really, I, there's really not enough evidence at this point. Okay. Um, I'm just curious why they decided to study that. So how is it that you That's work with... That's a good with, question. Yeah. <laughs> um, how is it that you work with patients or, or people who are on a weight loss journey or want to get on a weight loss journey? Oh, for sure. So I'm in uh, private practice. So it's really based on what their nutritional needs is why they come to see me. And I look at their overall pattern of what is happening. And uh, we make sure that they have a meal plan that meets their nutritional needs. So do you have them write a food diary for a few days just to see where the downfall is? Well, unfortunately, we are creatures of habit, so I usually do a 24-hour recall with them because most people eat the same Monday through Friday. Really? I've yet, I've yet not to meet someone that works Monday through Friday that doesn't eat the same Monday through Friday. Is that right? I thought I was the only one. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> mine's horrible, but anyway, um, I did. I did. I thought people liked a lot more variety for their palates than I did. Well... We think they like a lot more variety, but the reality is what they're saying is not what they're actually doing. Oh, well, that's interesting. I thought, I thought people would say, well, I had the tuna melt yesterday, and so I'm going to go for the mom's macaroni and cheese today. Um, yeah, so I'm a plain foods person, so I'm not, a big, I'm not big on spice. Um, uh, but anyway, uh, so that's, that's quite interesting. I did not realize that. So, so right now, the jury is out. There's really no evidence to support that any foods will increase your libido unless you found the placebo effect. Is that basically a fair statement? That would be it in a nutshell. Okay. Well, I look forward to learning about um, ginkgo. Let's see if that actually... Um, Me too. <laughs> yeah, that would, be, that would be great, actually, if it were found to improve libido. So, Allie Chernoff, registered dietitian, how can people get in touch with you if they would like to lose a few pounds or... Um, you know, increase their libido? Well, they can either go onto the website, nutritionatitsbest.com, or they can be old school and call me directly at 604-818-6760. And on Twitter, you are Nutrition Unique, your handle? You got it. That's wonderful. Well, I really appreciate you joining me, Allie. It's great information. Thank you for having me. Glad to dispel some of these myths. So remember, it's the whipped cream and it's the and it's the chocolate sauce. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath, registered nurse, hosting this program for you. One in five Chinese children is considered obese. Eighty-six percent of healthcare costs in the U.S. are tied to chronic ailments, many of which are driven by lifestyle and diet choices. This is why I invited Dr. Francis Valla, a health and wellness expert, specifically in the field of obesity medicine. He's a medical doctor with special training and board certification in bariatric medicine or obesity medicine. He is a certified life coach, speaker, and author of the book, The Third Vision. Currently, he is a clinical assistant professor at the University of British Columbia and the medical director of his own medical weight loss clinic or medical MBC, otherwise known as Medical Bariatrics Canada. Good evening, Dr. Vala. Thanks for joining me. Good evening. 
Hi, Maureen. Thank you for having me. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. This is a really important subject. Uh, We see as the world has become richer, wealthier, we've also become larger and more because we're more sedentary and because our diet choices are not that great. So you specialize in bariatric medicine. What does that actually mean? Well, that is the field of obesity medicine. In uh, it, it's one of the specialties in uh, in medicine, which specializes specifically around obesity and related complications. So, so when you and I were the, when you and I were chatting, you told me that there were over two hundred complications um, for people with obesity. Yes, absolutely. Unfortunately, this has become a, a worldwide problem. Uh, and the latest conference that I attended, I was uh, I became aware that there are about 236 complications that have been identified as a direct consequence of obesity. And now we can't we don't have time for all 236. But what are of some course. of the what are the, some of the ones, especially ones people wouldn't think about? Yeah, so uh, I would say the most common complication is diabetes, specifically type two diabetes, cardiovascular disease, heart disease. Uh, strokes, there are about 14 types of cancer, uh, sleep apnea, polycystic ovarian disease, arthritis, gout, high blood pressure, high cholesterol. These are some of the more common ones. What are, what are some of the cancers that are associated with obesity? Uh, some specific types of cancers, such as colon cancer, breast cancer, prostate, kidney, liver, um, esophagus. These are some of the more wow. common ones. I didn't realize that. They're directly related, unfortunately. And of course, body image is critical for the work that I do in sexual health and sexuality. And I hear so many people talking about that, whether they are turned off by their partner's weight gain or whether they're not comfortable in the bedroom because they themselves have gained weight. So that's another complication, I guess, that people wouldn't think about. So tell me about the work that you do. Um, And and when we're saying obese, what, what size of a person are we talking about? What constitutes obesity? So by worldwide definition, obesity is still based on the body mass index, which is a specific formula uh, which divides your weight uh, over your height square. And that number must be over 30. So anything over 30 is defined as obesity. And there are three different classes of obesity, class 1, 2, and 3. Uh, overweightness is a, a BMI of 25 to 30, and a normal BMI is roughly about 20 to 25. So it's st- still based on BMI, although it is not the most accurate um, definition. However, it's still the most commonly used one. Right, because it doesn't take absolutely everything into account. And so somebody comes to you with a BMI of 35, um, and they they want uh, they may have some chronic illness they may have rheumatoid arthritis or gout or um, some of the other issues that go along with um, sleep apnea that go along with obesity where do you begin with them so I usually start by understanding the why uh, that's one of the most important questions of what brings them to me I want to make sure that they are. Uh, ready in some way and also have a good understanding of what is it that they are after. Um, So we we usually have a 30-minute conversation trying to understand 
uh, what brings them there and whether they're truly ready in different uh, ways, emotionally, mentally, financially, in different aspects. So uh, most of the patients that I see also have at least maybe one or two or even more complications when they present. And, and that may often bring them into your office. So when, when you initially said you want to find out the why, do you find out the, uh, you, know, and, you know, pardon my um, lack of understanding here, do you find out the why are they eating, like it might be emotional eating, or, or why have they gotten to this size? Absolutely. So we dig a little bit uh, deeper uh, as to why they want to lose weight, what is their main motive? Is it the body image? Is it uh, uh, their physical pain? Um, what is the motive that brings them to my clinic? And some of the more common one- ones that I usually identify is, for example, a patient needs to have a surgery on their knee or a hip replacement or a knee replacement, and that is the main reason that they are, are uh, end up at my office because their surgeon told them, well, you need to lose so much weight in order to be able to have the surgery. Or body image or, uh, for example, uh, difficulty with uh, mobility. These are some of the more common whys as to, as to uh, what brings them to the office. And now, it, some people might have to lose like 100 pounds, right? Which can be daunting. Absolutely. Well, the, the, there's good and bad news around that subject of how much to lose weight. The, the bad news is that it is not as easy as most people think, specifically when it comes to maintaining the lost weight. The good news, though, is that they don't need to lose 100 pounds in order to feel better or in order to be able to improve their mobility. They only need to lose as as little as 5%, believe it or not. Hmm. So a 500-pound person that comes to my office, they really need to lose only 25 pounds, which is not a huge amount for them to significantly improve their life, their quality of life, and reduce the risk of complications. That's amazing. I did not realize that at all. That's a big uh, good news that we usually uh, use to help the patient understand and get them motivated as to, uh, you know, give them hope because there truly is hope to change right. their life. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's lots of new medications. Um, we're pushing up against the clock here, but um, there's lots of new medications available for people who have who just can't lose weight. Maybe it's a metabolism issue or hormonal problem. Is that correct? Absolutely. You know, most patients realize, uh, and there, there's a bit of education involved there, to help them understand that weight loss is more than just about diet and exercise. And usually obesity is a chronic multifactorial progressive disease. So there are psychological factors, like you mentioned, there might be emotional eating, there is metabolic, hormonal, and other factors. So we use medications and pharmacotherapy as an adjunct to lifestyle management. The cornerstone of treatment is a combination of lifestyle, not just nutrition or diet, but a combination of nutritional education, physical activity, stress management, and then we add medications to that on top of that. Right. It sounds, I mean, it's very interesting work and it's phenomenal work that you do. So how can people get in touch with you you, um, if they want to deal with their obesity and, and make their health a lot better? 
Absolutely. They can uh, reach my phone number. Our office is in Vancouver. They can reach me at, at 604-973-0167 or visit our website at uh, medicalbariatricscanada.com. Welcome to the Bedroom Bulletin segment of the program. What about relationship deal breakers? Do you have any? If you do, feel free to email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com. I'm going to enter your name into a draw for a womanizer, which is the only the most fabulous sex toy out there, a clitoral suckling device. So you can email me your relationship deal breakers or you can at nursetalk at hotmail.com or you can text them to me at 604-449-8459 and I'm going to enter all of them into my little draw. And then next week I'm going to announce my um, favorite deal breakers that you gave me. But mostly we, when we think about relationships, we talk about the list, you know, what we want to find in a partner. We want, you know, them to be a specific height. We want them to earn a certain amount of money. We want them come to come from a particular socioeconomic class. Um, you know, we want them to be athletic or, or whatever. But um, we rarely does scientific research focus on those deal breakers? What We mostly focus on what we desire in somebody. But there are some deal breakers that I was interested to see uh, out of a combined set of studies, six studies that were published in Personality and Social Psychology Bulletin. And um, I thought it was interesting to see men's and women's biggest relationship deal breakers. Deal breakers are traits that people try to avoid in a potential partner. So I've got some of the most common ones for you right here as well as how uh, they look uh, or how they vary across the sexes. I also want to point out that mate value plays a role in these studies and mating strategies are related to deal breakers. So people with higher mate value, maybe you're taller and you earn more money than your friend, uh, and a more restricted mating strategy have more deal breakers, as well as how people weigh deal breakers against deal makers. It seems that negative information, of course, is weighed more strongly than positive information. Of course, if you want to call me with your favorite deal breaker, the number to call is one 877 9898. There, on average, um, there are 6.1, 6.1 is the average number of long-term relationship deal breakers reported by single women. Men, single men have 5.4 deal breakers on average, not as picky. So what's your deal breaker? 1-877-399-9898. Deal breakers in a long-term committed relationship based on a national sample of 5,541 single Americans. The numbers reflect the percentage of participants who rated each trait as a potential deal breaker. So this should come as no surprise, disheveled or unclean appearance. 63% of men and 71% of women viewed that as a deal breaker. Lazy. Who wants a lazy guy or, or woman? Um, 60% of men viewed that as a deal breaker and 72% of women. You can't be too needy because that can be a deal breaker. I have a text from Marie and she says that uh, he banks with tangerine <laughs> or shows up to a date on a scooter. I have Len on the line. Hello, Len. 
Oh, hi, Maureen. Love your show. Oh, thanks. Again. I think one of the biggest deal breakers is when you fall for a woman, she gets you to fall in love with her, and then she starts to show you her weak side. Number one, alcoholism. Alcoholism. Yeah. <laughs> so how long does it take to figure out somebody has alcoholism? Well, you know, some people can drink and get up and they act fine and they're right. fine. And I picked up the phone one time. She picked it up, as I should say, and she was drunk. And she said, I didn't want you to know I was like this. Oh, yeah. And she'd got her hooks into me. I fell in love with her. And then I realized that she started telling me that she's been drinking since she was a kid and she would drink to excess and get totally violent. Right, yeah. So that is a huge deal breaker because it's violent and it's just obsessive violence. It's uh, insane violence. It can be. Some people can, you know, we have a lot of functional alcoholics in the world and they, some people can be extremely happy, but, you know, their lives typically are chaotic or can be chaotic in different domains of their life, but... But that's, that is definitely a great one. So did you fall out of love with her because of the alcoholism? No, I'm still in love with her, but I had to get away from her because it was hysterical violence. It was oh. like she was uh, to the point where she was in a trance. Oh, I'm really sorry and about that. she was that. hitting me, and I was just, I'm a pretty big guy, and I was just blocking her, pushing her away, pushing oh. her hands. I there's no way I could close my fist and hit her. She'd never get up. Well, I hope she gets the help she needs. Maybe losing you she's was... She's not going to get the help was, she needs because she doesn't believe. She thinks she's a functional alcoholic, and I think that's a joke. Yeah, I think functional alcoholics don't think that they need help. But anyway, alcoholism is the bigger problem than fentanyl in this country or other um, drugs uh, or the opioid crisis. Um, but people don't realize that alcohol is a drug. Thanks so much, Len, for the call. I appreciate it. Um, so, you know, let's uh, lighten this up a little bit. No sense of humor. 50% of men felt that was a deal breaker. I think that's a massive deal breaker myself. No, you got to have a sense of humor. 58% of women uh, felt that that was a deal breaker. Uh, bad sex. 44% of men. That surprised me. And 50% of women <laughs> uh, felt that bad sex was um, a deal breaker. Hmm. You know, but I do hear a lot of people in my clinical practice, they will, they'll come in and they'll say, you know, well, we didn't really have that much sex when we first met. And, you know, I just felt that they were the marrying kind and I had hoped it would get better. Um, I had hoped her desire would increase or I had hoped his desire would increase and it wouldn't. Um, I had a patient, I'm going to tell you about her in a little bit, about, you know, 44 years later realizing that she had married the wrong guy. Um, but, uh you know, that, that can be difficult as well. And, and she actually asked me the question, um, I asked her if she was sexually active and she said no. I asked her if she self-stimulated. This is part of a sexual health assessment. If you come to my clinical practice, that's the questions that I will be asking you. Um, and she said no. And then she said, do you think I'm asexual? And I said, well, you know, let's see. I needed to ask her further questions. And so I asked her if she had ever had... Um, you know, sexual desire, if the sex was ever good with her husband. And she said, no, it never was at the beginning of the relationship. And, and she just assumed that this is why sex ed is so important. She assumed that the fact that she had never felt desire for him, but, you know, she married him after uh, her mother died two years after her mother died. She met him. He was 10 years older. She needed somebody to care um, to care for her, and she found that you know he cared for her, um, and and then she we talked a bit more, and she said you know what about five years prior to that she had met a man at her at choir, 
and um, she felt tingling down there, and she felt attraction. I said, "That's it. That's it. You're not asexual. You, you know, she wanted to have sex with this man, but she didn't because she said she was raised to be a good girl. It's like, oh, for crying out loud, this good girl thing has to end. No more good girls because good girl actually means you have no." agency over your sexuality as a woman. A good girl means that men want to have sex with you and then they want to slut shame you. It also means that your female friends will may slut shame you as well. Uh, good girl means that you may only ever have sex with one man for your entire life. Uh, that's a fate worse than death. Um, so there are so many aspects of this good girl, and there's so many uh, religious right that promote this good girl syndrome, if you will. And so, you know, I really think that, you know, good girl means that sex is shame-based for your entire life. It means sexual oppression and confusion. It means you play a passive sexual role your entire life. And it also means that girls and women have restrictions placed on their female power. And you know what? You potentially can miss out on the greatest pleasure ever. So this whole good girl thing has got to go. So getting back to um, some, I've got, I'm just getting a whole bunch of texts here as opposed to, <laughs> uh, as opposed to what I'm trying to give you the results of the study, um, doesn't have their own friends, says Janice. Uh, also, I've got another one from Sarah, calls their mom every night to say goodnight. Another one gets blackout drunk every time they drink or has lived with every person they ever dated, three people by the age of 27. Um, so those are some relationship deal breakers that are that are coming in. There's a lot of people that, um, here's another one from Julie, doesn't have a driver's license. Uh Okay, so did you never get a driver's license? But in this day and age, do you actually need one? I don't know. Um, Also, lack self-confidence. I was really surprised at this. 33% of men, it was only 33% of men that felt that a lack of self-confidence was a deal breaker. Uh, To me, self-confidence is the absolute most important trait a person can have. It is the sexiest thing that somebody can have to be self-confident. 47% of women felt that that was a deal breaker. I mean, self-confident, you know, and we're not raising a whole lot of self-confident people these days because given the snowplow parents that we have out there plowing away every obstacle they ever have in life. So these kids can never feel like they've ever done anything on their own. So, you know, watch out, iGen, um, for the iGen, I tell you. Um, Being stubborn, 32% of men felt that was a deal breaker, 34% of women. You can see there's not a tremendous amount of difference between the um, men and women here. How about this? Talks too much. (laughs) 26% of men felt that that was a deal breaker. Only 20% of women. Like, what guy talks too much? None of them. 11% of men felt that a a woman, a person who's too quiet, um, that was a deal breaker, whereas 17% of women didn't like that. Now, men had a lot more tolerance for somebody being blunt. Only 11% of of men felt that that was a deal breaker, and 17% of women felt that that was a deal breaker. Um, 
too athletic, 7%. I mean, I guess that speaks to your self-esteem. Um, anyway, so, uh, and 10% of women, not a whole lot of difference between men and women here. Thanks everybody for sending in your relationship deal breakers. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the radio player, Canada app, tune in Amazon Alexa, HD radio at 101.1 FM HD two and on the AM dial 980 CKNW.